0: Welcome to Fried Friday. Today we have an exciting episode about coffee. And I'm Dennis Slivchak.
1: And I'm Adam Spitz. And to uh, curtail on Dennis's uh, aforementioned reference to the coffee uh, category that we're going to be discussing today, we have uh, two very special guests, um, Mr. Uh, David Zabrowski and Mr. Michael Slater. Both of them are... Uh, at the Food Service Technology Center, engineers have been working for many, many years on on test method development and basically anything related to the food service sector. Um, Michael is an engineer and he's the lead on the test method for uh, development of the uh, espresso machines right now. So Michael, we can't wait to hear uh, some of your updates on the research and the analysis and the data acquisition that you've been assembling over the last couple of years, um, and then he's also the uh, water heater expert over there at the Food Service Technology Center, and then uh, of course Mr. Uh, Zabrowski, who is now celebrating his what is it thirtieth or so year at the Food Service Technology Center, and this year they're actually um, celebrating their thirty-fifth year anniversary anniversary um, of the of the center. So David has a long tenure. Um, associated with the, with the institute uh, over there in San Ramon, California. And uh, Michael is lucky to be one of his, uh, you know, colleagues and uh, support pillars uh, for test method development ongoing. And this is also where uh, David also uh, allowed Dennis and myself the opportunity to get really fully emerged in the food service sector uh, at the laboratory many years ago. But it's great to have David and Michael on the line. So thank you both.
2: Yeah, absolutely great to be here. Um, Dennis and Adam, thank you so much for the intro. We're, we're excited because we're talking about coffee and coffee has gotta be one of our favorite topics. We've often joked that all the research at the Food Service Technology Center is fueled by gratuitous amounts of coffee. And that, that theory was proven when our coffee machine broke and we were unable to do any research.
3: Yeah. Coffee is near and dear to my heart and coursing through my bloodstream.
0: So
1: (laughs) you got to test your product, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll start this off with a couple of, uh, up questions. So, um, how, how do you guys brew at home? Um, I'll start with Michael.
3: Yeah. I, uh, I use a French press. Um, I've got two sizes of French press, depending on how many people I'm making for. Um, but, yeah, I'm mostly about volume, so I get a lot of use out of my really large, like, 64-ounce one.
0: Nice. That, that's what I use, too. Oh, how about you, David?
2: I'm actually a bit of a coffee fetishist. I've been slowly amassing different brewing methods, and I try them out try each and every one out every time I find a new roaster that I'm becoming enamored with or becoming acquainted with. My current favorite method is actually the mocha pot. And that was an old school method that gives you an espresso-like beverage on the stovetop. But I find that it doesn't necessarily work for every coffee. There are some coffees I prefer to use the press pot for. Uh, Sometimes a pour-over drip works nicely. I've been also a fan of the Aeropress over many years, and that is actually my uh, travel companion. The uh, best way to have coffee when you're on the road or you don't know where you are is bring a kettle and an Aeropress, and you can always have a fresh fruit cup. And then lastly, I have something that I got out of Australia called a presso, which is a hand crank espresso machine. Pour the water into the top compartment, and you press it through the, the, uh, the coffee grounds.
1: How does that differ, David, from uh, a traditional French press?
2: Uh, the presso is more like, uh, it, it's a bit like the AeroPress in that you're pushing the water through the grounds. But the difference is you generate higher, uh, higher pressure in the presso than you do in the AeroPress. It uses a, two, a double-handled press.
1: Is there a temperature difference um, between that and, and any other standard or percolating like Turkish coffee, for example, um, that preparation is there a difference in temperature of the water?
2: Generally, when I'm using the AeroPress, it's a it's a plastic brewer. I'm generally using a cooler water temperature. I tend to use it for the coffees where I th- that I get a nicer, a smoother. Ex- I'm going for a smoother extraction, so I'm usually going around 185 to 190 is the sweet spot for that. When I'm using the presso, I'm going more for an espresso like beverage. I'm trying to produce crema and I'm getting the water as hot as possible, as close to boiling as possible. And I do ample preheating of all the all the aspects. The, the unit itself is made out of aluminum. So I preheat the porter filter, I preheat the, the coffee maker, I preheat the cup, I preheat everything multiple times to make sure that I, everything is as hot as possible. And I don't have any temperature loss after I pour the hot water in.
1: You are definitely an engineer. Only an engineer <laughs> would apply that level of detail to their preparation of (laughs) a cup of coffee. Well done, David. I knew knew you always had a step up on everybody. You always look at things a little bit differently than the the average consumer. And uh, that's a perfect example of that. We all have something to learn from you, is what I'm getting at.
2: (laughs) Well, it it, it can feel like a little bit of overkill at times, um, but it is also a lot of fun.
0: So you mentioned a mocha pot. Um, is that kind of like a percolator, or, or is it different?
2: Uh, a mocha pot was the original Bialetti Italian style stovetop espresso maker. It Doesn't truly make espresso. It's more. It's it's really creating a. It's pushing the using the vapor pressure in a sealed chamber to push the the hot water vapor through the top of the grounds into into a bowl at the top. It's not necessarily brewing at the same level of pressure because it's atmospheric, but you get something that's a little more akin to a concentrated coffee syrup at the end.
0: And you mentioned some coffee um, temperatures. Um, How how do you actually measure those? Or that's just, you know, some settings that correspond to those?
2: the one thing that's unique about all of my brewing methods is I'm using all manual brewing methods, uh, nothing where I'm plugging anything into the wall unless I use my electric kettle and I'm using a uh, manual thermometer to measure the temperature of the the water that I boiled in my kettle. Nice.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm usually, uh, I brew my coffee really hot. And then, so I don't burn myself. I put it in a cold cup, but, uh, <laughs> I think that that hinders it. Um, a follow-up question I had. Um, sometimes um, people leave coffee in the brewing devices themselves. Uh, we're talking about home home devices. Um, and is there a point where you keep the coffee in them too long where the, the quality starts deteriorating?
2: In my opinion, the quality deteriorates almost immediately. You want to brew fresh coffee for every cup.
3: Totally agree. Um, there are a bunch of delicate kind of aromatics that like completely change a flavor profile of a of a cup of coffee. And I mean, you can try this out at home just by straight up making a cup of coffee, letting it sit on your desk for 15 minutes, taking a sip before and after, and it's going to be a totally different taste.
0: Yeah, I've, I've seen people uh, leave the French press, uh, drink one cup and then leave it for a couple of hours and With the grounds in there so that's that's a bit too much um so the second question i had um was what about the the coffee itself what kind of roast do you prefer Uh, michael uh lately i've been all about the pete's
3: big bang which is a medium roast that has a couple of like fruity notes in it um been getting a big kick out of that
1: I think I know what you're talking about, Michael, and I've had it and I agree. I think it's a delicious uh, bean, uh, roasted bean. So I, I would second that one as well. Not that we're doing product placement advertising here. We're just connoisseur uh, objective opinions. Let's put it that way or subjective rather. S- speaking of like uh, specific brands, I mean, sorry, Dennis, not to, to take over the, the question because I think you want to hear from David on this. Um But, you know, there really is quite a variety and in in terms of beans that, you know, so there's the process, but then there's the bean manufacturing, the roasting process that takes place prior to the actual uh, brewing process. And are those things connected one way or another? Um, You can have a great brewing process, but eh, less quality beans. Um, and vice versa, right? So you can you can have the best uh, roasted beans on the planet, but if you're not preparing it correctly, the consumer, whether it's yourself or a family member or a customer in the commercial world, um, they may not find that to be as satisfactory, right?
2: Definitely. And there's actually a uh, different theories in terms of how soon after the roast the beans should be consumed. There some of the new thir- you know some of the latest wave of coffees that are focusing more on the fruitier aspects are really trying to encourage consumption closer to the roasting date because you're able to capture those aromatics that Michael referred to earlier whereas over time you lose those and the coffee settles down uh, there are some brewing methods like the french press where if you try to brew it too close to the roasting date you do get a lot of effervescence a lot of off-gassing uh, in the beans which can actually create a spillover effect that can be a, an ugly cleanup
1: can you elaborate a little bit on that David um, That's an interesting point so are you saying like over roasting or over uh, brewing or too hot of a temperature I mean all that co- it's a science right so it all comes yeah. into play
2: well actually the the thing I was describing was when the when the beans have been roasted there's a little bit of carbon dioxide gets that gets trapped in the beans that releases slowly over time when that as that is as that releases you do lose some of those aromatics however in that first say three to five days right after the beans have been roasted they still have a bit of that trapped co2 in in there when you put the coffee in with when the coffee comes in contact with the hot water it encourages the release of the of the co2 and you do get uh, some some frothing in your coffee that can, be, that can be very good for certain brewing methods. It gives you the best crema for espresso. You want the freshest, most closest to the roast date as possible for espressos. And for filter coffee, it works very, very well. But for French press coffee, you typically wanna let the beans settle down just a little bit. So if you're a home roasting enthusi- enthusiast, you generally wanna let the beans rest a little bit between the roasting and the brewing if you're using a French press.
1: Okay. So how does that translate to uh, like single cup, for example, cake cup? And I know we're jumping the gun here on the discussion, but since it's relevant, um, how does that, if it's in a concealed container or packaging mechanism, is that something that preserves it long enough such that you don't have that um, unfortunate, you know, over the date uh, from original roast? Uh, consideration, um, meaning, is it okay if it's if it's conserved in the, in that manner?
2: The, the The beans themselves start to lose a little bit of something after they've been roasted. It's it's a constant process. It's organic material, and they are going to lose those aromatics slowly, even if they're in uh, in you know sealed packaging or oxygen free packaging. They're still going to lose a little bit of something. K cups or other types of packaging where the beans are pre-ground, you've increased the surface area, so that just accelerates that deterioration. So part of our our idea about you know quality coffee is you know your best experience is to grind before you brew, and that that leads us into the idea of this um, bean-to-cup type of machine that gives the customer or the consumer the best experience possible because. They're able, the machines grind the beans and produce the cup of coffee right away. That gives you the, the the shortest amount of time between grinding and brewing and gives you the best quality extraction from that bean.
0: Since we're talking about coffee beans, I think it makes sense to start from the beginning, um, and start talking about roasting. Have, have you ever tried roasting your own beans or can you talk a little bit more about the process?
2: I have but i would have to say that uh, my home roasting uh, attempts have been somewhat disastrous i was using a uh, cast iron skillet and hand turning the beans with a with a wooden spatula not the most even or most repeatable method of roasting they do there are different places that sell home roasting equipment some based on the air popper and there's some other other pieces of equipment that give you a more consistent heat And you can actually get uh, a really reasonably good quality green coffee beans that you can roast at home. And that gives you just a whole nother dynamic of flavors and another level of control over the coffee. However, oftentimes buying the green beans, you don't necessarily have access to some of the the highest qualities, uh, coffees that some of the larger producers are able to go out and get. And so... I often find myself after having home roasted, I go back to the, to the roasteries that I like best that do a really good job and are making a very exciting flavor profile based on a combination of the, their, their bean sourcing and their roasting techniques.
1: David, you have a lot of time on your hands if you're sitting there with a spatula and uh, rotating beans over your stove top.
2: Oddly enough, it's, <laughs> it's like three minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> with the, with the with cast iron skillet on high, it's, it, it happens really fast.
0: All right. <laughs> it's like homebrewing.
2: You got to try
0: it. But uh, once you uh, reach the limits, you start appreciating other people's craft a little bit more, right?
2: That's a very good description.
1: <laughs> and going back to the, the green bean um, that's how they're imported from wherever, right? Whether it's Peruvian, Brazilian, Puerto Rican, somewhere else in the world. Um, those are all coming in, um, basically like what would be considered like a potato sack of, 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 raw bean. Right. And then that's at that point, that's where the roaster comes into play. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's correct. And Coffee beans are—they're like wine. Uh, it depends on the soil, it depends on the growing climate. Every region is producing a slightly different bean, and even the same, exactly the same type of bean, whether it's Arabica or uh, Robusta, grown in a different soil or under different conditions, is going to yield a very different flavor profile. Mm-hmm. So you have the source of the beans, and then—and then, and then that's—that uh, is enhanced by the roasting process. So, if you want to taste those wonderful fruit uh, blueberry characteristics in your high altitude Ethiopian coffees, you know you do generally go towards a lighter roast that allows you to fl- uh, taste those flavor profiles. Whereas uh, a uh, a robust Sumatra may benefit more from a darker roast, mm-hmm. where that allows you to bring out those caramelous and chocolate characteristics.
1: So, when you say a darker roast, or is that uh, related to temperature, or Uh, amount of time that the roasting period occurs or a combination of both
2: combination of both
1: okay so if you have just your run-of-the-mill standard bean and you have a high quality bean and everything in between it really makes a difference on the roasting side not necessarily where the bean originates
2: Uh, in terms of the flavor you're gonna you're gonna taste something different if it's from a different location,
1: okay. But you're also going to curtail your method of roasting according to what you're trying to extract. Like you're, yeah. you want to highlight this aspect of it, like you said. Um, yes. Whether it's this, the the blueberry pop, uh, you, you know, it, there's a way to actually make that more robust than it otherwise would be if it was prepared in a different way,
2: right? Yeah. And, and similarly, you can over roast coffees and just get a uh, sort of a charcoal flavor and lose all the all the nuances if you if you overdo it. Mm-hmm. So it's a mm-hmm. balance.
1: Yeah, it's just like anything else, and that's where I think the uh, test method development comes into play, uh, where you're still performing or offering or producing something that is of high quality but doing it in an energy and water efficient manner. Right. And I think that's where Michael, your research comes into play.
3: Yeah, a little bit. Um, So for the, the, the goal of of the test method that I'm working on right now is to um, be able to measure the energy efficiency and production capacity of espresso machines. Um, And so you know, one of the things that is sort of a hallmark of the Food Service Technology Center's test methods is that the quality of our test product is, let's call it, substantially different from the quality of of a product that you might expect to actually be served in a restaurant or a cafe or whatever. Um, So really, the, the qualities in the beans that I'm looking for are really less related to you know how good of a cup of coffee or a shot of espresso i can pull with them and more related to how consistent um is one manufacturer's brand of beans uh over another in terms of like grind coarseness or density or heat capacity so it's sort of an interesting thing i mean thinking about how some of those some of those characteristics might change year over year given that coffee is a natural product Um, you know some of the bulk qualities might change
0: yeah i think um, your lab kind of pioneered using food product and giving customers information with a food product where i think a lot of other test methods have been developed using um, food simulator products so i think it's definitely important to, to, to think of coffee machines as more than water boilers and actually use, uh, use product, uh, with it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, you can totally model a, a, an espresso machine as just a boiler that's running at like 250 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's so much more of a visceral experience to be able to communicate, oh, this espresso machine can make 60 shots of espresso in an hour and can also, you know, steam like this many gallons of milk rather than to say like, Oh yeah, this will produce like, you know, 50 cubic feet of of steam per hour or whatever. It's a better way of communicating.
1: Are you seeing a relatively uh, significant difference in energy performance when you're running tests from one espresso machine to another?
3: Uh, Yes. And actually, it's mostly on the steam side uh, is what we found. Um, So, you know, the uh, most modern espresso machines are at their core, they're a boiler that's running uh, and producing some superheated steam steam that's above two hundred and twelve degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and the way that you pull a shot out of that is by running some of that steam through heat exchanger to cool it down to a just above boiling uh, liquid water. I'm sorry, just below boiling temperature liquid water. Um, so when you're pulling a shot, you're pulling just about the same amount of energy out of that boiler. But when you're pulling steam, um, that's where you can see some of the energy differences because you're using so much more energy to pull an mm-hmm.
1: equivalent amount of steam. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so, so maybe it would be helpful if you could walk us through a little bit about the the, the test procedure that you're that you've been creating, that you've been developing, that you've been refining over extended period of time. Because as far as I know, I don't recall there being a, uh, a mechanism or a procedure that monitors the actual steam generation for frothing f- milk or heating up, you know, some sort of a, whether it's almond milk or regular milk or whatever, uh, soy milk for that matter. Um, but you're, you're taking into account that, that capacity, that, that energy consumption and that water consumption, even though it's probably minimal. Um, but you're, you're looking at all of that now, right?
0: Adam, I think, um, I, I think we dove right in the thick of espresso machine testing. Do you think you guys can give us a little bit more background information of, uh, the coffee test method development period and just whether there are other machines that have uh, established test methods
3: well uh there are i believe established test methods for um, batch coffee brewers Um, and there have been some um, other organizations such as the gosh i'm forgetting the name the world uh Specialty specialty coffee association yeah thank you um who um have you know done some uh, amount of testing around uh, actually a pretty wide variety of machine types um but there hasn't been anything that's been sort of standardized for specifically the energy efficiency and production capacity of um espresso machines and you know one of the you know one of the reasons is that it's actually sort of difficult and we can talk about this later when we talk about you know the espresso machine test method development um, it's kind of difficult to talk about production capacity for any of these machines at all, um, but specifically with with uh, espresso machines because everybody's shooting for sort of a preset um, shot time extraction time um, that happens to be around twenty five seconds from the uh, Specialty Coffee Association. That's what people refer to as a God shot. Um, and so, when all of your shot times are the same, and if your machine can adequately recover in between shots, your production capacity starts to, you know, become a little bit meaningless. It, it's hard to differentiate machines because everybody's trying to shoot for the same exact production capacity
0: um, time over time. And do you think there's um, some machines try to sacrifice um, energy efficiency to chase that target? Of um, consistent shot, plus or minus X amount of degrees.
3: Uh, I imagine that there probably are, yes, but we're still kind of, um, you know, in the development stage of this test method and haven't performed it on a really large number of machines yet. So, uh, you know, I, as I've been doing some of this testing, um, haven't observed that yet.
2: I would say that one of our goals as we're approaching a developing a standard test method for any category of equipment is to try and emulate the energy use profile and the production profile of the equipment under more controlled settings that allow us to compare one piece to another. And we try to isolate what are the performance characteristics that are the most important to the operator and also identify what are the ways we can use look at the system to try and improve either the use utilization of energy and or the utilization of water associated with the process to maximize the that use of resource with espresso machines you have a number of different techniques that are used to try and keep everything at a consistent temperature we were talking about temperature consistency in the brewing process uh, when I was talking earlier about other some manual methods that I use, and these these automated methods are really no different. They're trying to control that ex- the the extraction temperature and control that environment as much as possible. With the espresso machines, you have the added complexity that you have a steam wand that's also using to froth milk, and in most cases, as Michael alluded to, the the machines are really being designed for that worst case scenario where you're doing a large number of milk drinks back to back to back to back to back, and you need to make sure that you've got enough boiler capacity so it doesn't run out, while not sacrificing that temperature stability for the shots. And in fact, when the Specialty Coffee Association is rating machines for competition grade, those are the characteristics that they care about the most. They care about the most about temperature stability. And so that's going to be a part of our test methodology. But- but in order to address that, Michael's got some other challenges in terms of what is a standard load. Michael, you want to talk about that?
3: I, I talked earlier about um, everybody trying to pull a 25-second shot to try and pull a god shot every time. Um, but you know, going through uh, the thought process of what like a standard load might look like, um, there are espresso machines that have one two and three heads <clears throat> excuse me heads um, meaning that you could conceivably be pulling three shots of espresso and also be you know frothing three uh, carafes of, of milk or soy milk or whatever at the same time um, so you know trying to get to what like a standard load really looks like um, basically you want to be thinking about what's happening at a very busy coffee shop during an extended period where they're just pulling shot after shot after shot. You know, it's 830 in the morning. Everybody's trying to get to the office. Um, You know, you have, you know, many baristas um, going back and, you know, just making as many drinks as possible. Um, And, you know, those are sort of the conditions that you want to be thinking about when you're designing a heavy load test. So, the way that I've set this up for this test method is basically to um, start the test by pulling a shot. uh, And then when the shot has been pulled, running the steam wand um, for a predetermined amount of time. So, you know, before setting up this test, uh, the idea is that I've already measured the amount of time it takes to froth um, milk from a cold to a ready to, um, you know, quote, ready to drink state, which is uh, at I think I set it at 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, So basically going and and from those two things, you can make, you know, whatever, you know, coffee drink you want with that amount of energy, and then just going and repeating that many, many times um, to get an idea of how much water and energy is used per coffee drink.
0: And, and I had a question about milk. I think it's kind of one of the, the law starts of how do you froth the milk correctly? Um, how long does it usually take to froth it? And um, do baristas usually froth a large amount or do they froth it for every drink?
3: So baristas usually froth for every drink. Um, I, I, just quoted in 180 degree Fahrenheit temperature. That just happens to be an easy thing for me to, you know, measure with some of our data acquisition equipment. Is why I chose that. Um, but um, baristas really are frothing every drink, trying to get to sort of a visual, you know, this amount of milk has been frothed.
1: Well, there's also the element of strategy, right? Because you know, if you're doing a cappuccino versus a latte. You're going to have a different, in a barista, artists would probably agree with this, where you're going to have a different style of how you're bobbing that uh, stainless steel container um, with the wand, and you want some of that more uh, fluffy, I don't know what the technical term is, but that that frothiness that's a little bit more like a cloud than just hot milk. Um, so there are different strategies right to you know get the end product to be what the customer is expecting totally like cappuccino versus latte is the example
3: totally and you know each of those uh strategies is going to use a different amount of energy and so you know for trying to figure out how to make uh any kind of uh, 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 espresso machine use as much energy as possible during a given time period, Um, I'm really shooting for more of a I'm making a triple latte kind of um, drink, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So are there any reports that you guys have um, established and published that are available to kind of compare like one model to another or that's not that's not we're not at that point yet?
3: Well, so one of the things that we need to do is is submit this test method to um, ASTM, our, our uh, report standardization body, um, so that we can get buy in from the manufacturers and from you know large end users about whether or not. Uh, this test method makes sense uh to them you know to to me what i have put together makes sense and is repeatable and will differentiate machines from like an energy and production capacity sort of standpoint um but you know if nobody in the industry buys it then you know it's going to be sort of back to square one
1: mm-hmm. yeah well we got to loop in uh nama and uh the specialty coffee association get all those folks on board and And it'll be like running for green pastures.
3: Totally. I mean, you know, it it just needs to be a part of the conversation, right? Like everybody needs to be at the table and, you know, I can accept that my perspective is limited because I'm, you know, sitting in a lab, you know, making coffee, but I'm certainly not somebody who um, has ever built an espresso machine before. So... Um, sure. you know, those manufacturers will have a different sort of perspective than I would. And it's it's valuable to have their input in trying to, you know, have that level of nuance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, you, Michael and, and David and Dennis, uh, I think all three of you need to head on over to like Italy and do some field research.
2: Fully agree with that. <laughs> you know the best the, the best part about doing this process and one of the biggest challenges is trying to encompass all the different approaches to design and technology and when we were developing the standard for bulk coffee brewers or batch coffee brewers we had to accommodate everything from the traditional glass carafe type brewer that's on a, on a, a little electric hot plate warmer to all the way to gigantic coffee urn brewers that were brewing five gallons at a time, 10 gallons at a time, and come up with a method that can be consistently applied so that they could be consistently compared. Not that you would necessarily be looking at, gee, do I want a, a five gallon brewer or a 12 cup brewer, but more just to try and understand the energy differences and what technologies can go into play. What we found is that they're all pretty efficient at heating water because they're using electric elements that are either very, very closely associated or in some cases immersed in the the water tank. And so it wasn't really where we were gonna see a lot of gain, but where we did see gain is how well do they retain heat in the water tank through insulation? And is there any opportunity to use setback controls to reduce energy use during these long in operating periods such as nights and weekends. And we did a study that was published a couple of years ago where we looked at a lot of these different technologies and we found a coffee brewer that came out of the factory with the setback mode available, but not engaged. And every operator we talked to that had that machine was completely unaware that it existed because they, you know, who reads the manual anyway? So we started doing the study just to see what could be saved. and It was kind of interesting that there were significant savings available we took that one step further and did a couple of field sites where we were able to monitor espresso machines that had similar capability and for you know a small mom and pop uh, operation that's closed on weekends because they're really uh, catering towards the uh, the business traffic they were able to get very very significant savings through the implementation of this technology, so these are some of the other things we could start to look at in addition to the types of performance. You know, how many drinks per hour can you produce? How consistent is your stability? What kind of what is your energy profile? The next question is: Can you reduce energy consumption or reduce energy waste by maximizing the opportunity to shut that down or slow it down during those inoperable periods?
3: Yeah, and just to tack onto that. Um... There's sort of a longstanding myth in the espresso machine, um, you know, zeitgeist that it's bad for the espresso machine to actually shut the espresso machine down because you might do some sort of damage to some of the orifices that hold the machine together and keep it to be, you know, water and steam tight. Um, And so there are many places in their current operation that just leave their espresso machines on in an idle, like ready to brew state um, all the time. And so something like a setback mode uh, can be hugely beneficial for any kind of uh, site that has long periods where they're not operating at all because it takes it out of the hands of operators who might not ever turn off the machine at the end of the day um, to go into a lower setback mode for significant periods of time.
0: And looking at the the machine design, um, do you usually see the tanks insulated, or do you think there's still machines being produced with no insulation, or sometimes are they being taken off during service? Well, I won't speak to whether somebody's
3: removing insulation during service, but uh, the few machines that i've had the opportunity to take apart have had some level of insulation around their boilers
2: and we've seen some that have no insulation and uh it given given the the cost of these machines one one expects that after service the all the, all the requisite parts are being put back on but there there is an argument there that you don't want to insulate it too much because you want that you want to utilize that waste heat to heat the cups now I kind of think that's a, a little bit of a, an upside down way of looking at it If you've got waste heat coming through the coming from the top of the machine from the boiler well you know you could utilize that waste heat to heat your cups but there's that's not necessarily the best use of that heat uh, the best use of that heat would be to keep it in the water
1: yeah that's an interesting uh, point actually. <laughs> I always wondered that. Um, you know, it's great that you're repurposing that excess heat, but at the same time, is it necessary? And at the end of the day, you know, you're producing a hot cup of coffee or coffee drink. Uh, so you're already introducing that heat to the, to the vessel, the cup, if you will. Um, so that, that seemed like kind of a cop out to me too, David, uh, but I could be wrong. You know, there's a chance that uh, that's totally intentional. I can't imagine why, but, you know, it's possible.
2: Of course, that gets into the whole question of uh, you know, drinking out of a ceramic cup or drinking out of a paper cup. And <laughs> I think, you know, if we look on average, most people are drinking their coffee on the go. Uh, you're getting your cup and you're getting in your car. Uh, you're using your insulated thermos, hopefully. Um, with a sealed lid, um, but, or you're just getting it and walking down the street. And so those, the ceramic cups sitting at the cafe, enjoying, enjoying the well coffee, well-crafted cappuccino and and, in the, in the nicely preheated cup, I think is, is less common in terms of just total coffee consumption, but it is a nice experience when you get it. I, the question is, is there a better way to preheat that cup or does it even need to be preheated? as Adam was saying, because the, uh coffee's already pretty hot.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you talked about the big coffee brewers. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the container that the coffee is actually getting into and how that could be a potential energy saver?
2: Yeah, uh, the different ways to when we're, when we're brewing lots and lots of coffee for a lot of people that that brew to order single cup approach, doesn't necessarily work if you've got to give 2,500 people coffee, in, you know, in a very short period of time. So there's, there is a limit to the, 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 the ability of those single cup approaches for large groups or large, large demand situations, in which case you do need to build a batch brew the coffee. The best way to do it is to utilize insulated urns. There's different types of Approaches where the urns are actively heated, um, or where you're going into a carafe that is on an active warmer. Most of those warmers are using 100 watts, whether they need to or not, and they never shut off. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, some like that burnt diner taste that coffee can get after it's been on the warmer for a couple of hours, but generally speaking, it's not necessarily good for the beverage. Uh, so, the best best approach and the best quality coffee is going to come if it was brewed into an insulated urn that's helping retain that temperature
0: yeah I think there um, there are a couple of um, QSRs that use timers on these crafts to um, to make sure that the coffee is fresh and they, they change colors too um, so another related question I had um, if you're having, um, coffee not an espresso just a coffee in europe um, they call it an americano and it's made a totally different way than in the u.s where it's made in a um, a coffee brewer um, do you want to talk about maybe some taste differences and preparation differences
2: like an americano is actually an espresso with hot water added and that That's a different, the espresso is in a different extraction method. You're using a combination of hot water, um, typically around 205 to 205 degrees Fahrenheit and high pressure, up to 12 bars of pressure to extract the uh, flavor uh, flavonoids from the beans. The drip style coffee that we're used to here is filtering your 205 degree water through ground beans and having having it drip through uh, a gravity filter and that it has a slight that has a very different extraction profile because you don't have the pressure the pressure actually helps pull some of those oils out of the beans and into the cup and that gives it a different that that actually is where that crema comes from the the natural Mm -hmm. coffee crema is actually the the encapsulated oils that have pulled have pulled through into the shot
3: one thing that helps with that extraction, also for espresso machines in general, is the grind of the bean. Right, the uh, finer your grind is, the more effective surface area you have, and so the more you know high temperature water you can get through your beans, and the more things you can pull out of the bean in general. Um, which is actually where espresso gets its name. Espresso is uh, means essence. Um, a lot of people think it means Like express because they mishear espresso, but it it means essence and it refers to that you're you're pulling as much of the internal you know good coffee stuff out of the bean as you possibly can.
0: Yeah, I've heard that um, some machines are using a bloom technique. Um, So sometimes um, in a pour over um, coffee situation, sometimes you just put a little bit of water on top. Um, and then let it bloom, and then you're extracting it. Um, have you guys seen any of these technologies being um, employed in some of the the machines?
2: Yeah, there are there are um, coffee coffee machines are getting much more sophisticated than they used to. Um, so instead of just using a standard shower head and dumping the water at a constant rate from from the start of the brew to the end of the brew cycle, they are doing. There are different. Uh, profiles that you could do different kinds of pulsing or do that um, pulse a little bit and then wait for that bloom which is the off-gassing of the encapsulated carbon dioxide that's in the in the coffee the other thing you're doing is you've got a dry grind you've got a dry bean you've got dry grounds and they're not going to necessarily you're not going to necessarily extract very much from those dried grounds the One of the reasons for that bloom is you're pre-wetting the grounds so that they have an opportunity to interact with the water and exchange those and allow the water to extract those flavors from the the grounds. So you can do a a simple test at home with two two, uh, standard Melita-style pour-over filters. Take your ground coffee, put them side by side, uh, take your kettle and pour one normally, and then the other one you... Pour just a little bit, allow it to bloom, and then pour it more slowly through. Hmm. And you will definitely taste a difference in the extraction from the same coffee, same temperature water, but just varying that technique.
1: Hmm. And it, does the uh, grind, the uh, the finer grind, extract more flavor than than something that's a little bit more less ground
2: or? It's a balance, uh, and and I'm going to defer to Michael because I know, you know, French press guy, you typically do a coarse ground. It's a balance between time and surface area. One Mm. of the reasons for the finer grind with a pour-over style is that you're trying to extend that contact time with the water, and the finer grind gives you more surface area, and it also slows the Mm. flow of the water through the grounds.
1: Do you yield less product? if you have a finer grind because it absorbs more of the water content. For example, if I'm making a a pot of coffee at home and I want to brew six cups, I have to fill it up to eight cups to yield six cups. Um, because all that additional water gets absorbed in the grounds itself. So is that a flavor or and or energy like does that impact either of those the flavor profile or the energy profile
3: well a good amount of that water is also just being um being vaporized and you're losing a little bit of massive water there um okay that's that's also i mean you're having some water get stuck in your beans yes um but generally speaking that uh isn't something that you see too much of a difference is in uh, when you have uh, different uh, grind coarsenesses of coffee. Um, that's really something that happens sort of in the bulk volume of your coffee ground uh, rather than something that's driven more by surface area.
1: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. So um, I know right now um, you guys are developing the semi-automatic espresso test method is there a plan to in the future develop a fully automatic um, or super automatic espresso machine method
2: absolutely or,
0: or can this one be applied um to to the other machines too
2: the the goal would be to how to reuse as much as possible from the from the semi-automatic as we're porting over to the super automatic. But once we get into the super automatic machines, we're gonna to have to also account for the grind. And that's gonna change our approach slightly in terms of how we, how we look at the product and product quality and product consistency. And it's also going to look at, it's going to change the energy profile because in the super semi-automatics, we're really just looking at the brewing process. We're not necessarily looking at the brewing and grinding process, whereas when we get to the super-automatics, we're going to be incorporating that as well.
3: Yeah, David, you totally hit it on the head. Um, This current test method, really, I'm I'm using an external grinder that um, I've uh, specified in the material section of the test method. And there are some uh, semi-automatic, well, quote, semi-automatic espresso machines that have built-in grinders that talk to the machine itself, um, even though they're not incorporated to the same box. Um, And so I'm sort of imagining a scenario where those machines are going to be counted as um, super automatic or fully automatic, however you want to. Call them um, espresso machines and test it under that test method, as opposed to the one that I'm developing, which is really um, going to differentiate the super automatic and, and semi automatic machines.
1: Michael, do you have much buy in from manufacturers of this equipment? Uh, uh, their opinions on, you know, how you're classifying one type over another.
3: Um. I I mean, that's part of the reason that uh, ASTM exists as a as a body um, is so that we can kind of facilitate that conversation. Um, but currently, no, we have not had that conversation yet.
1: Okay. Yeah, I was just curious because, you know, I'm going to step into my regular day job here for a moment and um, representing uh, the Energy Star program as a consultant. Uh, the interest in expanding scope is there uh from manufacturers from epa's perspective everybody wants to see more coffee not just batch brewers they want to see more coffee um you know product categories to to you know expand the scope onto for for energy star and and then um so so that's really positive because we're we're really getting a lot of feedback. That's like, Hey, yeah, let's do more. Let's do more. And I love that. And there's a lot of enthusiasm there, um, again, from the manufacturers directly. So that's pretty cool. And then the other thing I wanted to say is a little bit of a lighter note. Um, We were talking earlier about the, you know, the vessels that are held. uh, We're not talking AirPods, but we're talking about like those crafts, that are on those heating elements, David. You referenced like 100 watts per per heating plate, um, which I think is about right. And you know, if you we're all in California, if you go to like the base of uh, Pacheco Pass, it's in San and you <laughs> and you go to that Chevron station, there's like 24 or more of these warming pots that uh, have these glass decanters in and they're just sitting there. And so if you, you know, you're thinking that's 24 hours a day, so 24 pots at a hundred watts each, 24 hours a day, that's a lot of energy. So there's gotta be a new way to sort of address that. And I think that's what David was alluding to earlier when you're talking about like air pots instead that are self insulated and they maintain temperature just fine.
2: Big opportunity for energy savings with such a simple change and it's part of its culture change but there's a lot of factors that go into it and they have to do with usage uh, and and form factor and how how the operator is interacting with the units how their customers are interacting with the units going from a you know using a craft self-serve approach to getting people used to the idea that I'm going to I'm going to use airpods or or uh, the insulated urns and seen plenty of examples where they they have both and both are still in use but we'd like to see just a better way of, of looking at it
1: yeah there's no reason not to the technology is there right david um it's it's just yeah. adopt it you know make a little change here and there and next thing you know we're we're saving all kinds of operating costs um I, I think, energy, all that stuff
2: i think the biggest challenge is just awareness you you look yeah. at it you look at coffee machines, you think, well that's a small load it can't possibly be using that much. How much could I, you know, how much could I realistically save? Where it becomes interesting to us is when you start looking at all of the coffee machines that are out there and mm-hmm. all when you, when you add up that inventory of units, even a few watts shaved can, can yield big savings And this, the, that's analogous to computer monitors or office equipment. Mm-hmm. individually they don't really save a lot it's not having a big impact but collectively there's a tremendous amount of impact you can make by making simple changes
1: mm-hmm. that's a great takeaway message so for everyone listening that's the takeaway right there incremental savings yields great savings in the long run and when you exponentially express it it's huge and the Again, going back to Energy Star, that's what they try to message. I know that California Energy Wise they do the same thing. David, I know you're you're the brains behind that operation, uh, among others, of course. But you're you know you're the one that's like putting that message out there, and so it's really reassuring to the to the customer, the operator, the end user, whatever you classify yourself as, you are part of what could be a solution to a conundrum. And the conundrum is how do we use just as much, if not less energy to do the same amount of work? And that's the the key takeaway I think right now.
0: Yeah, I think Adam, well said. Um, I think this is a good point to, to wrap up this episode and uh, wanted to see if uh, our guests have any um, last additions or questions.
2: I'll just go back to where we started and say coffee is a, is a, is just a, a really fun journey. There's so much you can do with it. The best place to it's the best place to experiment. Cause it's easy. It's simple and little changes make a lot of difference. So go out and have fun.
1: I think David just uh, hit the title of this thing, little changes, big difference. Unless you're doing a Kurt Russell reboot of Big Big Trouble in Little China.
2: Uh, Oh, well, we could always be up for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, um, congratulations again on the 35th anniversary of the Food Service Technology Center. And uh, looking forward to having you on the podcast again. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks Thanks. so much for having us.
1: You bet. See you guys in Seattle in the end of April, right? Yes. ASTM. Uh, that's yes. Why. Okay. Dennis won't be making it, right, Dennis?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I know. It's going to be a very very well caffeinated bunch. Uh,
1: <laughs> we'll have to go coffee hunting.
0: We will. Yes.
1: We'll take the <laughs> afternoon off. We'll do a field trip. <laughs> Perfect. Very good.
0: Well, thanks. It's been another episode of uh, Fried Friday. Hopefully you'll tune in next week. Thanks. Goodbye.